This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 5th, 2018, and this is episode 2,339 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, and we are on our regularly scheduled programming, guys and gals. So you know what Wednesday is? Wednesday is interview day. I think you're going to dig the interview that I have for you today. Our interview guest today is Nick Loper. He is from SideHustleNation.com. And this is a guy new to our community, didn't really know a lot about TSP when he applied to be a guest. But this is one way that I absolutely love to get guests. And when this happens, and I expect today to be no exception, when this happens... 99.9% of the time, it's a great interview, and it usually leads to future collaboration in some way, shape, or form. Either me going on their show, or being part of what they do, or having them back on, or in some way, the relationship lasts, even though the person comes from you know what we would call outside the TSP general community. What is that method, or what is that way? That way is one of you who are a follower of what we do here, and a follower of someone else goes to that other person and says, hey, I think Jack would like what you're doing. I think you'd make a good guest on his show. Please consider coming on the show. That happens a lot. However, the person on the other end, being the kind of person that actually listens to the people that follow them, pays attention to them, values what they say enough to come on over to the Survival Podcast when they're doing something about building businesses, check into it enough to validate it, because they valued the input from the, the, the listener enough or the follower enough to do so, and then fill out the guest form. Do it like actually fill out the guest form, not just ask me whatever you want. Somebody from your guy said I should come on. Um, usually that person has the right heart. I am often reluctant to bring on people from outside the fold, um, and I know that's different for a, a show that does interviews once a week. But the reason I I try not to do that is I don't like takers from my community. And I don't mean that I'm not willing to share the abundance. Anybody who's been following us a long time knows that's that's not the issue. What I mean is I don't like people that are drive-bys. They show up, they throw up, and they leave. And whatever they can drag with them on the way out the door, that's why they were here. You never hear from them again. When they they tell you, well, I'm a big fan of your work, and you're like, you don't know anything of as soon as they start talking like you you are a liar you don't know anything about me you don't know anything about this community and you just say that because it's the right thing to say that's not what we're going to get today i've listened to this guy's show this guy gives a shit about people he's bringing up innovative ideas for people to build businesses and i think that's a lot of times what people need i kind of crap on ideas sometimes but I don't crap on it from the standpoint of finding one. I crap on from the, the, the when you're like, I got five ideas, and I don't know which one to shut up and do one, right? That's or ideas are useless. Execution is everything. One of my laws of life. But I think a lot of times people need to realize like how many ideas there are. I think there's a stagnation uh, in, in in online world right now that people find someone they like what they do. That person is in idea X. And therefore, if they're going to emulate that person's actions, they're also going to emulate that niche. 
and going out and creating your own niche or understanding how broad niches are. Not everything has to be YouTube video based or, you know, there are offline businesses. There are opportunities out there. There's ways you solve problems. That I think for a lot of people, they'll hear that and they'll think, well, you know what? I can do that. An example would be John Dowie of Dowie, you know, Dowie Farms and Microgreens. He heard Luke Callahan on this show say, yeah, I did microgreens. I made money. Here's how you do it. This is the basics. I got a book. And John said, well, I can do that. And now he's multiple years into a full-time business, primarily based on selling microgreens to restaurants. He heard the idea, then he executed on the idea. I think today's guest can help others. And if I, I, this is you know a big thing I feel. If a guest causes one person in this audience to take actions that leads to a better life, then that guest was worth having and probably worth having back. I think that's what we're going to get from Nick today. Again, his website is Side Hustle Nation. He's got over 300 episodes on building businesses, bringing guests on that have done that, etc. Really solid dude. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. I talk a lot about silver and gold on the show, precious metal. How about the other precious metal? We call that copper-jacketed lead. Look, guys, a gun with no ammo is a club And it's a club that can get you shot because it looks like a gun and the person that doesn't have, that sees it in your hand doesn't know it's not loaded. A gun without ammo is at best a club or something you can barter or sell for money. It can't do the job of being a gun. You can't train with it. You can't defend yourself, others, or your home with it. And you can't put meat on the table with it. And you can't even really have much fun with it. I guess you can fondle it. And I know guys like to fondle guns. Right, But you can't really enjoy the gun. It doesn't really do what it's supposed to do without ammo. So you need ammo. You need lots of it. And we just I, many of us just don't have time to be going from store to store, trying to find the ammo we're looking for, dealing with some moron. Hey, do you have any more in the bag? Oh, no. Just, ah, well, what are you going to shoot with it? None of your business. I want this. Bulk ammo. You get by all that. You go on their site. You pick what you want. You order. You get great, great pricing. You get great service. And you get shipping so fast, your ammo will be on your front door before you would have gotten out to the store to buy it anyway. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Self-Reliance Magazine is a quarterly magazine that focuses 100% on how to be more self-sufficient and self-reliant in the modern world. Brought to you by the generation, the, the, the generation following those folks who brought you Backwoods Home Magazine. And yes, Backwoods Home's coming back. A little aside here. I'm getting this squared away so you can get discounts on both publications. Give me another week to square that away for you. Anyway, Self-Reliance Magazine is that modern version of Backwoods Home. It's kind of like Mother Earth News in a way without all the liberal nonsense. And it's not all a bunch of conservative nonsense. It's kind of done with a libertarian flair, focusing though not on politics but 100% on what you can do. Check them out today at self-reliance.com, and their website, guys, is a is just a, a, a huge amount of information for free in addition to their quarterly publication that you can subscribe to and have mailed right to your own front door. Next up, let's take a look at this day in history before we bring our special guest on. We're going to go back to this day in history in 1933 today. What happened on this day in 1933? Well, Prohibition ended. Yeah, that's right. This was the day in 1933 that the 21st of the Amendment of the United States Constitution was ratified, repealing the 18th Amendment and bringing an end to the era of national prohibition of alcohol in America. 
Um, at 5.32 p.m. Eastern, Utah, of all places, became the 36th state to uh, ratify uh, the amendment, achieving the requisite three-fourths majority of the state's approval. Pennsylvania and Ohio had ratified it earlier in the day. Um, you would think that we would have learned something from the 18th Amendment, that pro prohibition of substances doesn't work. And if you look back at the history of prohibition of alcohol in this country, it was like handing the keys to the castle to organize crime. It gave them a money-making opportunity like they had never seen before, and boy, did they capitalize on it. Um, you can look at the rise. Now, there was always organized crime. There's always businesses for criminals to be in. But when you look at the footprint, the number, the money, and the power of organized crime in America, it goes up exponentially like weeks after prohibition went into effect. And the reality was you can get government convinced to do something. You can rally enough Democratic support to get government to do something, but it won't change reality. And the reality is people like alcohol. And people drink, and many people feel that the right to consume alcohol is a fundamental human right, and whether it's good for me or not, it's not your effing business, okay? So eventually the country woke up to the fact that this was a bad idea and then began immediately thereafter a consorted, continuous prohibition of other substances called drugs, as though alcohol is not a drug. And, and today still we have people that are in prison For marijuana. Now, don't write me with your stupid nonsense and tell me, well, no one gets busted for a half ounce of marijuana and gets put in prison. I understand that. They might, depending on the situation, go to jail. But no, people don't go to, but people do get busted for having, you know, a dozen marijuana plants in a closet in their house and go to prison and tend to distribute, et cetera, and they'll line up seven felonies on you. In states that have legalized it, understand they haven't legalized it, what they've done is regulate selective legalization, and there are people that are spending more time in prison for the same specific offense now in those states because now that it's legal, you're interfering with legitimate business, which means the state able to take a portion thereof. And what we've learned through history, in every action government's ever taken, prohibition of anything, when it is a non, uh, when, when there's no victim involved, Never works and always makes whatever situation you're trying to fix worse. This is true of like, even selective. We're like, okay, well, this thing's legal, but you can't bring it in from here. These tariffs and, and, and whatnot. Um, there's always been a black market, a market for bootleggers in any place. In fact, I'll tell you who the most opposed people in the world are to complete decriminalization of cannabis. The drug cartels. Right behind them is Big Pharma, the prison lobby, right, and the alcohol lobby. The, 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 people know those three if they've done any research on this. But the drug cartels are the ones most concerned about this. Imagine if, if tomorrow the United States said, the hell with it. We, we are going to not prohibit any substance. Take whatever you want. Kill yourself. Go ahead. Go nuts. Because you're going to do it anyway. What would happen? What would happen to organized crime in America? What would happen to the drug international drug cartels? They would literally financially collapse tomorrow. Think about it this way. 
What would happen to the oil companies if tomorrow morning somebody released a little battery the size of a, of a, of a big coffee cup for a hundred bucks that you could buy? I know this is fantasy, but just hear me out. You could buy it, and then you could plug it into a wall in your house, and it would run your house, all the electricity in your house. It would run your computers. It would run your you plug your car into it at night, and you would never again need to buy energy from anybody else. Well, the oil companies would go bankrupt. Pretty much all the energy companies would go bankrupt, wouldn't they? Because now you have the why would you overpay? Why would you be subject to theirs? Right. So, if drugs became non-prohibited and people stopped going to prison for them, they would be cheap, available, and as safe as they can be for what they are. And we'd end up in a situation where we wouldn't have the crime that goes along with the dealing of the drugs. But we would still have the crime that goes along with the addict who can't get his heroin. Yes. And we have that crime now. And we would have less of it because he would need less money to fulfill his habit. And maybe we could take all these resources and set them up so that the... And there are right now tens of thousands of addicts, specifically to opioids like heroin, with their hand up going... I'm going to die. I realize how bad what I'm doing is. I cannot stop. I want to get into a program. Please help me. There, I mean, there are tens of thousands of them that cannot find a bed at a treatment facility. And we're spending this money to put those people in prison when they make a mistake on their probation or parole while they're screaming they want help. And in the end if we actually believe in rights and freedom and liberty that we claim to hold sacred in this country, you do not have a right to tell somebody else what they can and cannot put into their body. Our Constitution basically says that. And yet our government managed to circumvent that with all these drug laws. And the 18th Amendment is proof of that. It's proof of that. Because they were not able to prohibit alcohol without an amendment to the Constitution. So they should not be able to prohibit any substance without an amendment to the Constitution. And I wonder today, could you get one? Could you garner, of all the people that say they're opposed to legalizing, decriminalizing, etc., cannabis, if cannabis were completely legal in the country today and we accepted the constitutional reality that you cannot prohibit it under the Constitution, if somebody proposed an amendment to prohibit it, could you get three-quarters ratification of it? My estimation is... Not only no, but hell the F no. Anyway, with that, let me remind you real quick here at the beginning, if you want to help the show, you can support us by joining the MSB. I am going to do something that I wasn't going to do, but I'm going to do it. I have been running a sale to win back members who have had their uh, account canceled by PayPal or just expired, and people on the email list have been able to get in on the sale. It is not going on the email list anymore. It is gone and gone and gone. But if you skip the intro, you missed it. The code is WINTER18, W-I-N-T-E-R-1-8. If you use that when you sign up for the MSB today, and I'll let it run till tomorrow. I won't say it again tomorrow. You get the MSB for $25 a year. There you go. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get our special guest on. Our special guest today, again, is Nick Loper. Uh, he is the... Uh, the chief side hustler at sidehustlenation.com, a long-running podcast with over 300 episodes, 
helping people like you figure out how to build up their own side hustle, create their own personal income streams. And with that, hey, Nick, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I, I was telling the audience before I brought you on that, that you're an exception to the rule. Like, usually the guests we have on the show uh, are part of the community. We we don't usually have people like cross-pollination, not because we're opposed to it, just get so many requests for interviews, and if I can keep it in the family, I do. But, like, you came one of the, my favorite ways to meet new people. That is, somebody that listens to both of us invited you to the show I just kind of want you to know that you were introduced that way because it is kind of a family here. So now you're on the inside, man. All right, I feel I feel warm already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's before we dig into our topic today, which is helping people figure out how to kind of build their side hustle, build their own business, something right in the wheelhouse of TSP. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's go back before you were an entrepreneur. You're, you're sitting in study hall trying to get the guts up to ask a girl out or something, and You know, where does that lead you when you get out of school professionally, and how does that end you up into the world of being insane, which all entrepreneurs are? <laughs> oh my gosh! I and mean, how far back should we go? Like, I I was the kid who was trying to cut grass and trying to sell baseball cards at the end of the driveway, trying to figure out how to make money, and it came from mom and dad. Like, this stuff doesn't grow on trees. You got to figure out a way to to make it happen. Go babysit or something. Um, trying to, you know, what really struck me was during college because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And somebody came into one of my classes and, you know, was, was pitching this uh, house painting business as an internship. And of course they didn't say it was house painting. They just say, you know, this is a management level internship. You're going to learn sales, entrepreneurship, customer service, uh, hiring and firing. It was like, This sounds like really great experience. Let's do it. And then, you know, as you go through the interview process, they kind of reveal like, oh, by the way, you're going to be painting houses all summer. And I was, you know, a little bit like, is this a pyramid scheme? Is this a scam? And my, my wife was my girlfriend at the time. She was like, look, you know, it's three months of your life. If it's awful, it's awful, but you know, you can do anything for three months. And, you know, she's been super supportive throughout you know, all the ups and downs of the, the entrepreneurial adventures. And that was one of the formative moments of just, you know, go for it. That's really awesome, dude. Um, can we talk a little bit now about side hustles? Like, cause your whole podcast is based on side hustles. We, talk, yeah, we, use that, we throw that term around here all the time. What to you is a side hustle? What does that, what does that term mean to you? So side hustle for me is anything that you're doing to earn money outside of a traditional job. Um, generations ago, it may have been known as moonlighting. But today, I think a side hustle, it, you know, and it absolutely can be that second job. But I think it has this more entrepreneurial connotation where there's hopefully more upside potential, right? I can, you know, if I, if I work at this, if I build this, I can maybe get out of trading hours for dollars, Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because I remember being young and broke, right? And I, I was, I'm a lot like you. I was always trying to find how can I figure out how to make my own money on my own terms. But when, you know, you're, you're young, you take a job because it pays the bills and then it's just natural, like, well, I'll take another job. So right. back when I was like really young, I'm talking like early twenties, I'd just recently gotten out of the army. Um, I was in structured cabling, telecommunications, fiber optics, and things like that. And so I took contract work doing, like, cable TV stuff. And, you know, I look at back, back at that now, and I go, man, if there had been an Internet back then and I had <laughs> dedicated myself to something of my own instead of that, you know, I would have been a millionaire by the time I was 30. 
And, and I, I just don't think people realize the opportunity that really is available today to have something of your own and how big the Internet's a part of that. I listen to some of your stuff, and I know that some of the things that you guys talk about maybe is offline. Like there's, you know, still, there's still opportunities in the whole bricks-and-mortar world, but it seems like everything has opportunity online tied with it today, whether it is a full online content creation business or it's something like, you know, Uh, you know, parking cars or something like that. You could still use the internet, and I, I think that people that grew up with it are spoiled. Like they just don't understand what it was like to be broke in 1986. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a few years behind you there, so so not too bad. A lot of the stuff we talk about is online, but I'm always impressed with some you know brick and mortar operations or even offline side hustles where I, I mean, I talked to a guy recently who had a knife sharpening business started it while he was stationed in uh, Djibouti, Africa of all places and, you know, brought it back home and started, you know, sharpening neighbors knives and getting clients from local businesses. I think my favorite soundbite from that interview was I've got a real good thing going with a local sheep shearer. <laughs> well, you know, they need those clippers sharp. It's not an easy thing to do. Unfortunately, yes. I've, I've had experience with having to shear a sheep in an emergency. Um, it was at a, a different person's, it wasn't my sheep, and it, it made me realize that as much as I love livestock, I would never own a sheep. I just wanted nothing to do with it. But, you know, hey, that's, that's, that's a, a great example of finding a niche, and I think that's a big part of being successful today as an entrepreneur is realizing how many niches there are and what niche you can either find or create for yourself One of the things that I think a lot of us that talk about building a business here for people, though, is, um, I, but I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a business person. I don't think that way. What do you say to people that, that have that maybe as an objection to getting out and building something truly of their own? Yeah, that really is surprisingly a common thread. I mean, there are, there are guests that I talk to who are, you know, these natural born salespeople, natural born entrepreneurs. But I would say the majority come from that second camp of like, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but I got laid off or, but you know, such and such happened, or I had this idea and I, I couldn't sleep at night until I did something with it. Those are, you know, maybe the more relatable stories because it's a, I, I don't know. It's um, like my wife, I'll give you my, the example of my wife. She's a mechanical engineer by day, but by nights and weekends, her and her partner do wedding photography and family photography. And, you know, she never thought of herself as an entrepreneur, but now having done this and having built this income stream on the side, it's been so, so empowering for her. Exercises a completely different side of her brain than her day job. And it just kind of has proven like, oh, I can do this. I'm worth more than what it says on my business card, what it says on my paycheck. That's an interesting observation. I, I never really thought about it, but I think there's a lot of people who say they're not entrepreneurs, and you, you look at what they're doing and you go, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? You're, you're doing something entrepreneurial right now. They don't realize it. Uh, I had one of, one of my relatives, and uh, she started a house cleaning business, and, and she yeah. would refer to herself as not an entrepreneur. I'm like, you have a house cleaning business. <laughs> you She's run like, this business. <laughs> but I, all I do is I just clean some, some people's houses in my extra time. Yeah, that's a business. And right. it almost scared her. Like, oh, my God, I'm in business. Like, I'm sorry I told you. Go back to, <laughs> you know, the ignorance is bliss thing or something. But I think the reality is what I try to get across to people is like, well, I have a job. Okay, so you have one customer. Right. Right? You're still an entrepreneur. The day you are not beneficial to your employer, unless you're in government employment, 
uh, and then sometimes even then you are you don't have a job anymore. I mean, I've had employees. Kind of why I like being a one man show is I don't like employees, uh, but I've I've liked the people that have worked for me. I don't like the process of having employees. But what I really don't like is when you get someone, you go, okay, you're just not performing at a level that makes a profit. Um, either I have to get rid of you, or eventually I'm going to have to get rid of good people. And, and and that's how we all are. That's the we have this the this delusion, I think, of job security. Like, well, I have a good, steady job. Yeah, you remember 2008, dude? That was like a lot of people found out their job wasn't so steady. Yeah, it's like the uh, the parable of the turkey, right? Hey, the farmer keeps feeding me. Hey, the farmer keeps feeding me. Uh, and then Thanksgiving comes. Yeah. Um, I, I think you make a really, really important point about, okay, if even if you're employed today, recognize that you need to take control. You need to be the CEO, the CFO of your own life and say, okay, I'm already an entrepreneur. I just have one client, right? I think that's a really important uh, distinction to make. Well, and there's a lot of people that thought they were secure and – On paper, they were, but you know, you can name companies that don't exist anymore that employed hundreds of thousands of people. Enron, for instance, uh, that's going yeah. back a few years or what, what have you. But there are there are companies that have been merged, and I've been through mergers, and this is what I've learned by mergers. If you're the one grabbing, if you're the fish eating the other fish, uh, you're probably okay. If you're the fish being eaten, you're probably not. You merge. Always, they always say the same thing, like, "Oh, it's going to be great. We're going to use the, the strengths of both companies." They're like, "Well, we don't need two payroll departments. We don't need two inside sales departments. We don't need two. And all of a sudden, people just start vanishing. Yeah. And, and so that's a reality. And I think you're going to see more business acquisitions and things like that in the future. Um, and part of it is what's going on in our world. Like because we have this kind of guerrilla marketing capability, and individuals can do what brands and corporations, larger brands and corporations can't. Like the smaller individual is able to, to work that long tail, and so growing a market gets harder and harder for the, 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 the megalith company. So the easy way to grow now is I'll just buy out the competition and take their piece of the market when I do it. So I think we're actually – I don't know if you ever kind of made that observation. I think we are actually causing more of that to happen by getting all these little pieces that they used to be able to come up with some kind of direct mail campaign and acquire. Yeah, and you're seeing companies being able to get leaner, get by with less. And even it starts, you know, with solo entrepreneur companies like yours and mine, where I don't need necessarily a graphic design person. I can hire this graphic design service. I don't necessarily need an accounting department. I can hire this CPA service or I can hire this bookkeeping service. And I can kind of like build this little army of agencies or this little freelancer team and, you know, run really lean. And, yeah, I'll hire that out tasker for what I need done, and I can do a lot myself. I, do, you know, I'm sure you do a lot of your own editing and stuff like that. And I had a, a video guy one time come and teach me a few things, and he's like, "You have no idea." This guy was doing movies back in the '70s. Like, you have no idea how spoiled you are. <laughs> he's like that one feature I just showed you in Sony Vegas. That used to be a sixty thousand dollar piece of equipment to do that one thing. Ouch. And, and you like you real, and that's like you realize how much we can do today. But those companies again. Automation is pushing more and more people out of a job. You know, Uber's Uber, Lyft, things like that are a good side hustle right now. I, I don't. Know, I think in ten years, when you get an Uber, there's going to be nobody behind the wheel. So, yeah, like, you know, they're aggressively testing those self-driving yeah, cars. Yeah. So we've got to really, I think, think for ourselves now. So, what do you advise people when they say, "I'm trying to find a side hustle"? How do I pick the right side hustle? Kind of, what guidance would you give them in that path? 
let's walk through a few idea generation frameworks. And we've kind of touched on a few different examples already. But one that I really like, and I picked this up from the Tropical MBA podcast, another one of my favorites, is called Rip, Pivot, and Jam. And what that comes from is from basketball. But basically, I'm going to rip off somebody else's idea, pivot it to a new industry, new market, new customer base, new whatever. And then Jam is the hustle, the work, the, you know, go to town, execute on this plan. And, you know, one example that I see all the time is like the subway model of like make your own sandwich, but pivoted to a different food, right? We had frozen yogurt. There's the make your own pizza places. There's a ton of like poke bowl places that have popped up near us. And it's it's following this exact model, this rip, pivot, and jam. Somebody else has already figured out, hey, look, if you put all the food out on a nice little tray. People will just pick what they want and then you can do this. And I see that over and over again. That's a brick and mortar example, but that, you know, can be applied to any business that you see. Think, okay, what's the underlying model? How could I, you know, just twist that, tweak it a little bit to serve a different customer or to serve a different industry. And then that's your rip pivot and jam framework. Sounds a little bit like what I did. Um, you see this crazy guy from New Jersey talking about wine. You're going, I can do that shit. Yeah. Right. And then next thing you know, you're doing a podcast on, 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 you know, what I call modern survivalism, which takes all these things in. And then you look at what you and I are doing with a podcast. And if you look at every podcast, there's a basic formula. There's some things that are different, maybe slightly different revenue models and what have you. But then you could take this model that we're doing and you can go into any niche with that. And I don't know if you've seen this, but, and it may be more or less prominent in your niche. But what I see, and I think it's a stumbling block for people, is, well, everybody that wants to do that, they want to rip but skip the pivot, right? So you <laughs> that, end up – That's critical. Right? So you end up with all these people chasing this market that a couple people really have a pretty good handle on right now. And it doesn't mean there's not room for more. And it doesn't mean it can't be grown. But if they're doing it because, like, it's their passion and they're really good at that subject and they know that subject and they want it, well, that's fine. But I think a lot of people, like in my world, homesteading has got to be everybody's got a homesteading blog. And I don't want to discourage anybody, but, man, if your homesteading blog is not going to be in some way deeper, more meaningful, and different than the 75,000 other ones out there, it's probably just going to languish. You're going to be that guy six months from now. with that, You know that post you see on all the old blogs, right, Nick? It's like, I know I should have posted more lately, right? And that <laughs> post is six months old. And, and so you've got to... I think that is a great model, but man, that pivot, that is, I think that's the key. How do I take this formula and pivot to somewhere it's un, underserved and that I have unique value I can bring to? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the pivot is key. The, you ready for, um, framework number two? Sure. Okay. So framework number two is what I call the sniper method. And what that is, is looking at, big businesses, big companies, and trying to snipe off just a tiny sliver of it, a tiny piece of that. I don't want to be Amazon, but I want to be, you know, a company that sells, you know, wooden framed sunglasses, you know, some tiny little segment of what Amazon sells. And I can be the authority in that space. I can, you know, serve customers better, negotiate better deals, whatever it is. Um, the sniper method is kind of how I came up with my original side hustle, which was a footwear comparison shopping website. So this is back in the day when comparison shopping sites were more of a thing. Nowadays, most people just start their 
product search on Amazon. But back in the day, people would start their product search on Google. And my theory was if I could have shoes in the name, that was like the only criteria for choosing a domain. If, if I could have shoes in the name, like my listing would appear more relevant than price grabber, than next tag, than shopping.com. And it, it worked. It's like, I don't want to be, you know, trying to build this massive database of every product under the sun. But hey, look, I think I can do really well if I just stick to footwear. And and that was a business that allowed me to quit my job and and then, you know, do all this other fun stuff. I was listening to some of your story on that. And I think one of the things that you learned in that, and I have my own way I learned that, is that if you're going to build a business today on the Internet, affiliate marketing and using third-party platforms and all is fine for some of your income, but don't throw all of your, your eggs into that basket because somebody can make one change and all of a sudden you know, you're kind of getting hurt. Can you kind of talk about that? I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Yeah, so this was a business that I started in kind of like 2004 in its very earliest stages, and it lasted until 2014, um, which was a great run, and you know, I'm very grateful for that experience. But over that time, um, the business was heavily reliant on uh, paid traffic, Google AdWords traffic, and over time, and naturally, as more people came into the fold, those costs uh, increased. They probably doubled, you know, over the course of time that I was running the business. And on um, on the other other side, uh, the revenue side of the business, um, the site earned commission from Zappos and Amazon and all these other companies that sold shoes online. You know, they started squeezing the margins from from that side too. And so it kind of I was kept getting squeezed in the middle uh, over the course of over those ten years. And it was, you know, more than enough to to make a living for a lot of that time. But you know, I was really happy to have started several other side projects during the time that I uh, was running that. Yeah, and see, so there's a couple things there. One is the, the cost of advertising, and that's a constant struggle. Uh, and, and a new niche like online, paid AdWords, stuff like that, people get better and better at it, so the, the competition to use that platform becomes more fierce. But the other thing is the commission side of things, right? So as long as you're selling somebody else's product, they determine how much you get paid or if you get paid. And we do a lot as an Amazon affiliate ourselves. We had our income pretty much cut in half last year when they changed they, their payout yeah. scale, right? Because we would always hit the maximum payout like eight and a half percent on volume, and right. it just, just went away. They just said we can't. And on some levels, I'm okay with it because it's like whatever you got to do at the margins you make because they're so razor thin anyway, so that I can keep doing what I do and make money from it. Sure, but I think about like if if all I did was monetize Amazon through this show. I would have got killed last year. It was inconvenient, but our total revenue wasn't really that affected. And you got to spread things out. But you, what I was really referring to is since you were getting all your traffic through AdWords, didn't you say in one of the things I was listening to where Google just decided you don't meet our quality guidelines and just shut <laughs> off your advertising for a while? Oh, my gosh. This is my first day of retirement my first day of self-employment here i am like visions of the four-hour work week in my in my head and this kind of naive young entrepreneur like i figured it out i beat the system i'm doing my own thing and on day one they put me in my place in a hurry and you know the server had crashed or something so it, like it raised a red flag and then they took a closer look and say hey, this is just uh, you know, the sole purpose of your site is to drive traffic to other sites. I was like, that's the sole purpose of Google. Like, who are you to talk? But <laughs> that was their rule. And it was three months and it was really tough to, 
you know, get a hold of anybody. They wouldn't tell you what exactly you did to offend them. We ended up adding a bunch of uh, extra content on each of these landing pages, a bunch more internal links versus just, you know, to improve the percentage of links that were pointing deeper into the site versus links that are straight pointing out. And after three months, they came back and said, well, looks like we made an error. You're good to go. Mm. I was like, that was an expensive error. Like, you can't, we're not on video, but like, I used to have hair at that point. It was a stressful, <laughs> a stressful summer. I get it, man, because Google has a history of doing stuff like that because they can. So I was one of the early riders on the AdSense train where you had websites with their ads on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was good at SEO and I made deals with like third tier search engines like Seven Search and I was doing basic arbitrage. And so I started out like the first month I made like 300 bucks you know, after buying traffic from arbitrage. And I went, well, I can dump more money in. That's, and I can make more niche sites. And so it was a 300, 800, 1100. And like not very long into it, it was about maybe eight, nine months into it. I was making more money with Google ad, AdSense than I was from my job, which was a good job. And I had this wow. little thing in the bottom of my Firefox browser that told me what my stats for the month were cumulative. Uh, cause they made a plugin for it. And okay. I was sitting there going, I'm coming into Christmas of this year, thinking I'm going to make this a great Christmas because they owed me like $7,900 that month. And I, I looked down, and it says like $1,200. bucks. like, what happened? What the F that rhymes with truck, right? So I log into my account, and there's a notice there that says they found evidence of click fraud on my account. Ugh. But don't worry, you didn't do anything wrong. Uh. At this point, most of my traffic's coming from organic SEO from your own search engine. And I sent them an email, and they basically sent me an email back going, STUF, right? Mm-hmm, uh, STFU. Mm-hmm. Like, like you don't, we don't care what you want. You're not getting it. And then I just watched my earnings dwindle. And there's a lot of things Google's done. There was used to be a, a site, I don't know if you remember this, it was, uh, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was for bloggers. And people could buy, a po- it was paper post. So you want to build links, it was real easy. You go out and get all these mom bloggers and stuff to write up an article and put a link in it. So Google went through and took the page rank, which used to mean something, and just set every person who was participating in this program's page rank to zero. No concern whether the reviews were legitimate. They just didn't like (laughs) it because it jacked with their algorithm. So they just destroyed the income of the – most of them were like women working from home that had figured out I can make a grand here a month. By doing these posts, and they just yeah. destroyed them. So there's a level with- of like <laughs> online sharecropping here that I think is what we're dancing around. You got to use it, but be careful with it. Right, exactly. Playing with fire with any of these big companies, they could change the rules, they could change the algorithm, they could cut your commission in half, like Amazon did last year. You just you never know. Make it a part of your business, but you know, as soon as you can, you know, diversify from that. And they could do it because I look at Amazon and go, I get it. You guys make a 2% gross margin. I, I, okay, I understand. Yes, you do a trillion dollars, but still, <laughs> I understand. Google did it because they could. Google put every other competitor, Yahoo's publisher, everything out of business with that, that AdSense program, and then went, okay, we've killed everybody. Now we'll just cut our commission in half. Okay, nobody takes their ads down because it's more work than it's worth. We'll cut it in half, and they just kept cutting it in half until, you know, it, there's all that legacy stuff out there, and we'll just take it as we can get it. Right. So when we look at businesses, we have different primary business models. In the work you've been doing for these years with your, your stuff, what are kind of like the three main business models you've seen people come up with? So the big three for me are 
freelancing and consulting, that could be online or offline, like the knife sharpening guy. I'd consider him, you know, a freelance knife sharpener. Uh, e-commerce is probably the second piece of that pie where it's, you know, it means buy low, sell high, you know, and whether that's in person or online, doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's the oldest business model in the world, right? And then the third is kind of this online expert business model where, you know, you're creating content much like you have for the last 10 years, you know, establishing yourself as the authority, the expert in this particular niche, and then creating products and services around that. Very cool. And, and, and what do you think probably works well for the most, like what, what model is probably the best fit for the most people? Probably the fastest way to get started is this freelancing consulting model because there's so little overhead. You can stick your flag in the sand today and say, okay, I'm open for business. Where, so the downside to that is traditionally there's a ceiling to how much you can earn with, you know, just the, the constraint of your time. But one interesting way around that is, you know, to build it as, and especially if you can build this going in as the agency model or this connector model, and you gave the example of your, your friend's cleaning business, you know, I have another cleaning business example where he did that. He never lifted a broom or dusted a shelf himself. He said, you know, look, this, this cleaning industry is really fragmented. And he was going on Yelp and reading all the reviews and none of the customers were complaining that the cleaning sucked. They were complaining that the company's customer service sucked. I didn't know when the cleaners were coming. They didn't answer their phones. And he's like, well, crap, I could do that. And I could find cleaners. That's not rocket science. And so he built a pretty substantial business. When we spoke in just two years, he'd built this thing to like 60 grand a month. And of course he was making just a margin on that because he had to pay his cleaners. But from you know, you don't even necessarily need to be the expert in in that space to to go and, and tackle it. So I, I thought that was a cool uh, kind of connector model. And then the other one that is really exciting that has you know a, a greater upside potential is this uh, expert model, where you know if you can establish yourself as the go-to guy or girl for such and such a topic, that can be really really powerful. I just interviewed a guy who is the microgreens farmer. So he started his urban farm, you know, really, um, you know, for himself, like to take better control of what he was consuming and then found pretty quickly, like he was producing more than he could reasonably consume. He's like, well, what do I do with the extra? Turned that into a, a nice little side business, selling it at the farmer's market into restaurants and even doing a little bit of home delivery. I think he was up to 1500 bucks a month, uh, you know, doing that. It was when he started teaching other people how to start their own microgreens farming business side hustle that things exploded for him. And now he's up to like 40, 50 grand a month in selling this online course on how to start your own microgreens business. I was like, this is nuts. I, you know, in a niche I never even heard of. That's funny. During your intro, I talked, I don't know if this is the same guy or maybe it's a different person in that same niche named Luke Callahan, who we had on as a guest on this show a few years ago. Oh, okay. Different guy. Put out an ebook on this very subject, and we have quite a few people in this community right now that their full time income is growing microgreens and maintaining a book of business with restaurants. That's awesome. And you know, some of them do the farmers market stuff, but what the people out of this community have figured out is chefs order you know two hundred fifty dollars worth of stuff a week every week. Once you have that, as long as you keep that guy, he's mm -hmm. good for that business every week. And that lets them scale. Now, what hurts more is when you lose one, right? right? But, you know, we we have people that have built that very business here probably off someone similar 
as the expert telling them how to do it. And I think that's when you, I think that's when you're viable in that model. Like, where are your successful students? If you don't have an answer to that, then you're like a you're a modern day charlatan. You're the the back of the book salesman from the '70s. When you could say, well, here's these people doing this thing, right? And then then I think you're valid, and at least your niche is valid. And uh, like the other thing you said about whoever it was you interviewed, he did it first to the point where he was profitable. And I think that people they want to go into the expert model. I think it's great, but like. I know you've mentioned Four Hour Worst Week, week, so you're familiar with Tim Ferriss, I think, like we all are. But the whole establish yourself as an expert by reading three books and giving two talks, I'm a little thin on that because that's that's not who I want my advice from. I can also, you know, read three books and give three talks. <laughs> yeah, make sure that you you've been there, done that at least enough to answer people's questions and and be one step ahead. I don't think you need to have a PhD on you know, horticulture or anything. But no. You probably shouldn't because then you'll be like, you'll ruin the whole business. Well, you can't do that. You need this additive and then this has to have X. That, you know, like you need to be able to understand and explain the system and, and be able to prove out the system. Right. So I, I have like an issue with the next word that is different than where I'm going with it with this question, but it's idea. Um, I, I, for one, think there's too many ideas and not enough execution But I do find a lot of people really are searching for the idea that will work for them. So when people are saying they need a business idea, where do you say they should start? One place to start is, you know, with what gets you excited. And I kind of call this the the intersection method to see if you can marry this with, you know, people in your network or, or something else. So, um, Column number one, if you have, if you have a sheet of paper, you have three columns. Column number one is, you know, what have you gotten paid to do in the past, right? Any job that you've had is a skill somebody thought was worth paying for. What skills do you have? What are you perceived expert in? What do people naturally come and ask you for help with? That's kind of what I put in column one. Column two is your interests, hobbies, you know, what gets you excited outside of work traditionally. Um, and then column three is kind of your, Network. Who do you know? What connections might you have? And maybe even one layer beyond that. Like, who do you, who does your network know? Like, your network's network as a way to kind of maybe get a foot in the door for what potential, um, intersections you could draw on this. And so, personal example, uh, a couple years ago, I started a proofreading, a nonfiction proofreading and editing business because in column one, it was like, well, it was a decent, English student in school. Um, in column two, I was like, I like to read nonfiction books, business books specifically. If you're writing vampire romance, I'm probably not your guy. And then column three, I had already written a couple books um, myself at that point. So I had um, become a part of this community of self-published authors on Facebook. And so there was a little bit of overlap there. It was like, okay, maybe this could be another little income stream, another little side hustle. So I started to raise my hand and offer to do editing for people. That's really interesting, and I think what it gives you is credibility in your marketing because you can say, I've been through the pain of trying to find someone to do this for me, right? So you, you, you could say that I understand your needs because I am part of your group because, I mean, I, I try to take complex things and give them simple definitions that are as absolute as I can make them. So marketing to me has always been telling your story, right? So when your marketing is telling your story and your story hits with your 
with your market that this guy understands me, he's one of me. I mean, a different way, but kind of the same thing as speaking people's language. So one of the guys I'm thinking of with the microgreens business, he comes out of the restaurant industry. So when he goes in to sample stuff to a chef, and he gets back into the kitchen, and he's walking behind the staff, and he's like moving behind you and just kind of gives them a touch on the back the way a kitchen staff works. Well, he's one of us. Like, I like this guy. He doesn't come here and screw stuff up. He knows how to handle himself <laughs> in our environment, which is in some way kind of pseudo-military in a, in a restaurant kitchen. It's it's crazy how those places are run. And so when you went into that market, you had credibility because I'm one of you. I speak your language. I've dealt with your issues, and I've put together a solution for people like us rather than people like you. Now, I'm with you on the ideas thing you know it's not about the idea it's about the execution it's about the action but i'm curious where do you send people if they're like i just need a business idea that person doesn't bother me okay this is the person that bothers me i've got this great idea man and i want to tell you about it but i need you i need to make sure you're not going to steal it or like tell somebody else about it that's one and then the other one is this so i've got like three really great ideas And I'm having trouble figuring out which one, you know, is the best because they are all ideas that could just be huge. And so my response is, if they're all great, pick one and do it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to ideas, I actually think that's really important. And I think it's really important for the people that maybe don't see themselves as entrepreneurs. Because what they're thinking is, well, there's nothing I could do. And I found a lot of people out of this community that ended up building a business. And, any, and I'm talking, you know, microgreens. We have people doing soap uh, that are they're killing it, selling a bed and breakfast and stuff. Like, they'll hear an idea, and I think the most important thing that the would-be entrepreneur can think after they hear that idea are the words, well, I could do that. And if they can get to there, well, then, okay, how are you going to do that? Who are you going to sell to? And then... Building a business model around that, unless it's a really dumb idea like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to repair black and white TVs or something. Um, and you probably could even do that today, right? There's some hipster somewhere that needs yeah, to black. Yeah, I was just right? going to say. <laughs> right, but like you, you, I guess you could come up with a bad enough idea without enough of a market if you really tried. But in the end, I think you could be successful doing almost anything today. But if you know that you can do it and you have some sort of a passion for it, then you can probably be successful with it if you'll – if you'll put enough blood, sweat, and tears into it to make it work, and if you'll accept feedback from the entity itself that you're doing it wrong. Like, well, if I just, I'm waiting for, like, when people say to me, I'm waiting for things to pick up, I'm like, I can't help you. I, I, I we're done. Because if you're waiting for things to pick up, that means you're going to keep doing what you're doing that's not working. Um, now, having fortitude and being able to be patient, that's all good and well. But especially the person that's seen their revenue go up and begin to fall, and they're waiting for it to pick back up. I think that is a dying business. Yeah, that's a that's a tough position to be in. Okay, it's time to figure out, you know, stop doing the uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Or has the, the market changed, right? Like, because when I was listening to your story about your business, it seemed like your market itself changed. Your your comparative shoe business, like, so now it's time. Like, I need to really go do something else. Yeah, it was a slow enough shift. Whereas, like, I think it's okay. I think it's okay, and then. <laughs> eventually it became not okay. <laughs> now, you know what that made me think of, though, when I heard your business? Like, I'm always looking for links to pop culture. So the show Big Bang Theory, I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but it's the four computer nerds. and uh, Well, there's a really hot chick that ends up married to one of them, but in the beginning she's just a neighbor. And uh, she's kind of ditzy and all, but, but she's actually really smart. 
And so they were talking about developing an app uh, for iPhones that was basically good for like 200 people in the world, these physicists and stuff. And she, she was like, I got an idea for an app. What if you just like you're walking around, you see somebody's cute shoes and you, you took a picture of them and then the app told you where you could buy them. I was like, oh my God, that would, there's, that's got to exist somewhere. I haven't ever checked, but like that just shows you that the like, big bang theory. Yeah, it's probably out there. That's a good one. It's, it's, you know, and so like you would think there's not an idea in that business. And then like, you know, this, this ditzy blonde character, I'm not saying anything bad about the person herself, but this ditzy blonde character comes up with an idea like that. And you're like, there's a, wasn't there a story, I, you know, coming from your wheelhouse, I'm sure you've heard this before. Sometime like 150 years ago, some senator or something wanted to close the patent office. Because he said there was nothing, nothing new coming. We were done or right, something right. like that. Like, and there's just always something new that people can do. So yeah, I I'm kind of hard on people with the whole idea thing, but I'm not anti-idea. I'm anti-idea without action. And I guess my place to look for ideas is, I like what you said. What are you good at? What are your skill sets? But expand that skill set. So when you were talking about um, your friend with the the cleaning business and what he did. And how he scaled it, my immediate thought was, okay, he's an operations manager. So right. if I've got somebody that has experience as an employee, as an operations manager, that skill set can transfer into any service or product delivery type business. It's the same skill set. So that person might think, well, you know, I'm a product manager for a uh, an occupational safety company that you know does eyewash stations and stuff like that. That's what my son does. Okay, okay, so they think their their profession is in, you know, occupational safety. No, your profession is in operations management. So now, what operation can you manage that you actually like? And what niche and what place is there an opportunity that is not yet being served fully? Where, where are people hungry for more of something? What do people not want to do that you can either do or get done for them? And if you come up with that, then you have a starting place. Now, if you actually want to do it, have other people do it, make a product for it, that's all stuff you figure out along the way. Yeah, that's the um, the what sucks business framework sucks? of like you know going through your day and thinking about everything that sucks. Be like, well, maybe there's a business idea there. If it sucks for me, it probably sucks for somebody else, and a certain percentage of those people would probably be willing to pay to make that problem go away. Can't somebody else do it? That's, you know, that's kind of that business model. So, but when you get your idea, I've seen people get ideas and I go, that's, uh, oof, yeah, uh, I don't think, because they'll, they'll get married to their idea because it's their idea. And it's not that the, the niche is bad. They'll have one single product for this niche and you just, I just don't think, I understand why you have to charge $500 for that because it takes you 400 to build it and that's still not enough margin and you don't know that. Um, but really don't quit your job and invest your 401k into this. Yeah. And, and testing ideas I think is really important. And when I was listening to the podcast I listened to with you on it, uh, you were talking about how you tested your idea before you walked away from your safe, secure paycheck. Talk about different ways people can, can test those ideas before they invest too much time or money into them. In a way, this is a, to try and overcome the curse of the big business idea, where it's like if it's too big, if you find yourself, you know, it's on the to-do list this month and next month and next month, like it's probably too big to take action on, right? So how do you make it a little bit easier to swallow? It's like eating the elephant one bite at a time, right? For me, that was, you know, starting with 
again, Google AdWords, but with like a dollar a day budget. I was still in college at this. I was broke. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to put a dollar into this and see what happens. And, you know, you can wait, you know, spend seven bucks over the course of the week and like, Hey, 15 came back. Fantastic. Hey, 20 came back. Fantastic. Let's ramp this up. Um, it's trying to, it's trying to get to the money milestone, get somebody to pay you as fast as possible. Like that's the real marker of if the business has legs. And that's, you know, probably the downside to this online expert model is it can take a long time to build that body of work, build up an audience to the point where you have people to survey and ask, like, what would be most helpful? And you can create a product for them. You know, if you can, find somebody one-on-one, even if it's just like, hey, pay me for an hour of consulting or coaching, like that gets you to that money milestone a little bit faster than I'm going to, I'm going to build this media empire and it's going to be, it's going to be amazing, but it's going to take two years and and my life savings to build. Yeah. And I think like on the content creation side, I think that if you throw too much money into that at first, you don't understand that business model. Like, I think one of the things that I'm happy to be through it, but one of the things that was kind of magical in the beginning for me that I I can't ever have again was not being successful yet, but doing something worth making successful and having people feel like they were on the ride with me, right? That they were like, I'm going to be part of what this guy's doing because I like what he's doing. Like he said this one thing and I tried it. It worked and it helped me. So I want to help him back. And, you know, I, I want to, I, I would talk about, I'm, I'm going to, and I was actually very successful in the, in the conventional business world. I'm like, I hate my life now. I, I want to sell out to my partners and go do this full time. And there were people that felt like, oh, I'm part of this. And so in the content creation world, when it's a lifestyle business, when it's something that you're doing that other people identify with, I think kind of that, that first six months to two years, if you don't try to hide it and like do the fake it till you make it model, that's what wins people over and, and, and makes you very genuine in their eyes. And I think that like establishing yourself as an expert is great and all, but I don't think there's anything wrong with people seeing you make the transition to expert over time in that field. Yeah. And, and so spending all your money on the latest camera and the latest editing software and all that stuff, um, I think is a mistake in that business model, unless you're already somewhere that it's a, it's an adjunct, right? Let's say if you're in, 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 you know, you're already an established expert in, in automotive and then you, you kind of make the investment with money coming out of that to kind of add a component to a business. Now that makes sense, but, I think there's a lot for the kind of like viral by the seat of your pants start because there's no real overhead unless you make one in that business. Yeah. I've got a good one on the automotive front, actually, that, that sparked it. It was a guy in Chicago who was like freelancing, repairing motorcycles in his garage as his side hustle, but had the genius idea to film himself starting to repair those motorcycles. So he would um, film the repair, um, put pieces of it up on YouTube, like how to repair the blah, blah, blah on this bike. Um, and then if you want to do the full engine rebuild, you could buy it from him, like a digital download. I was like, that is genius. And then, of course, because his YouTube channel has become popular, I think Allstate reached out to him. Hey, would you do some sponsored content for us? You know, we really like your stuff. And just like totally, it started as this, you know, hours for dollars. Hey, I will fix your bike. But he had, I think, a really smart way to uh, to get out of that or scale that up. Yeah, yeah, and there's there, I, I, back to ideas again. Like I just think there's so many ideas that like, and I, I don't know if maybe it's it's once you really kind of make that switch in your head to being an entrepreneur. 
Like I look around and go, well, I could do this, I could do that, and I don't want to, but I could. <laughs> and so I think, like, let's say that something blew up my business and I, I didn't have an income anymore. I'm like, in two months, I'd have something else running, and I'd have, and maybe it wouldn't be the the life I have now, but I would I would not go back to work for somebody ever again because there's too much out there. There's too much opportunity out there. I, I you know, I was watching this guy. I'm like a fish nerd. I love fish tanks, and I was watching this uh, this guy on YouTube with a, a channel called Aquarium Co-op, and he runs a fish store, a brick and mortar store. But he uses YouTube to build his business base. And he had a guy on talking about making money in the fish uh, industry. And the guy's like, yeah, I make like uh, $2,500 a month part-time just working weekends because I love my actual job. Well, what do you do? Yeah. I go to office buildings and clean fish tanks. Not and I'm bad. like, that's literally the worst thing about my hobby. But if he likes it, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, well, I could do that if I had to. And I'm thinking, yeah. I could teach somebody how to do that business in a week. And then say, this is the hard part, though. Look out that window. That is your office. You belong out there, not in here. You have to go hustle up business. But I think there's just an, an unlimited amount of opportunity out there right now, in my personal opinion. Yeah, there really is. Now, Jack, I've got a question for you because this came up recently. Is If you're the person who is working full-time and, okay, all this stuff sounds great. I would love to build this side business, but doing so is going to take me away from my family and you know theoretically that's what i want more of is more family time like that's the, what the business hopefully will deliver for me down the road you know how do you respond to that person who says like okay you know in the near term this is this looks like a big sacrifice well so i remember very clearly when i was building this business the day that i sat down with my wife dorothy and said give me six more months give me six more months And I'm not saying give me six more months. And if it, I'm saying you give me six more months, and, and we've got this, and I'll be able to walk away from what I'm doing. And in a year, you'll be able to walk away from what you're doing. And I believed it, and it was true, and I could do the projections, and I knew it was true. But when I started acting that way in my own life before I knew it, I got to the point where I could know it. So. People look at something like a podcast to become successful. It has, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of downloads and they see it as almost like an overnight success. And it's overnight for you, not for me. So yeah. what I did when I started this show, I was working 10 to 12 hour days as part of a corporate conglomerate and it was 50 miles from my house. So I started doing my podcast in my car on the way to work and then I would listen to it on the way home the way I used to watch like Uh, tapes of myself in martial arts to see what I was doing wrong, right? Like to critique okay, myself, okay. not for arrogance. So I was using that commute time to do that. But I was also, you know, okay, I got to plan a show. And you know you know what that's like, unlike a lot of people, because you actually do, and you've, you've done 300-plus episodes. So it's not just that, you know, you could just talk about anything for a dozen. Um, well, so I'm, I know, nowhere near, I'm nowhere near 2,300, though. Right, but still 300. I remember 300. Like, you, 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 you know what you're doing by the time you've done a couple hundred episodes. And you know what it takes to make the next one better. So, okay, I got to plan tomorrow's episode. Okay, so I'd get home at 7 o'clock at night. Uh, I'd spend a couple hours with my family. I'd put my kids to bed. I'd work a little bit. I'd sit next to my wife on the couch with my laptop, answering all my comments, doing all my social media. And then at 3.30 in the morning, I'd get up, go downstairs, and plan my next show, make my outline, get in my car, and drive to work. And since I did have some autonomy there, I would close the door of my office, and they knew when the door was closed, if you go in there, he'll kill you. 
Right? <laughs> and I take 15 minutes to upload it. Everything was already done on the blog. All I had to do was upload the show and, and hit publish. And then I'd walk okay. away and do my job for 10 to 12 hours. And that sucked. You're that, getting by on four hours of sleep. Right. That sucked. And the amount of time my family got sucked. But in 18 months, I walked into my partners and said, I'm, I'm done. I want to sell out my interest. I want to take whatever pathway that you guys want to work out with me. But I've got this thing I'm doing on my own now. And I was asked a personal favor by the guy that had brought me into that group. Will you take over for the rest of this year as our COO for this one company in our group that's failing? And at the end of that, walk away under good graces. And I really didn't want to. But I did. And that was when I had the conversation with my wife. Give me this six months. It's going to be worse for this six months. But that's, that's the end. And I think that you have to believe in what you're doing enough to make it worth that. But I also, my concern with that is I don't want you to destroy your marriage or your life if you're wrong. So I think you yeah. need to be accepting the feedback from the market, from the business. If all you're doing is pouring things into it and it's not growing at all, it's not building anything, either do something different or do something else. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the benefit of the side hustle is like hopefully you can build it to a point where you've got some traction. You can see that it is working and you're not the first person to describe it as this kind of like, okay, hold your breath. It's going to be this sprint. It's going to suck, but we can get through this together and then we're going to kind of come out the other side stronger. So, you know, when you do something like a podcast, you get on Apple, you get on Stitcher, you do some online advertising and the internet kind of brings you customers and It, it takes time, but like I didn't go out and knock on doors and ask people to listen to my podcast. Some of the business models that we've been talking about are more person-to-person -person businesses. They're not as scalable, but they're solid businesses. How do you yeah. advise people to like find their first customers in these various different businesses? Well, one way is to do what you just said: is like tap into these pre-existing marketplaces, pre-existing. Um, you know, networks of buyers, iTunes for podcasts being, you know, probably the largest, one of the largest ones out there. But, you know, marketplaces like Amazon, marketplaces like Upwork or Fiverr for freelancing, even marketplaces like Lyft, you know, I'm going to turn on the Lyft app and hey, somebody wants a ride. Um, marketplaces like Airbnb, like Rover.com uh, for, for dog sitting. Um, somebody in the side hustle community was like, I'm, I'm up 10 grand this year dog sitting. I was like, holy crap. Um, So that's, that's one way to do it online is like go where the cash is already flowing, go where the, the groups of buyers already are. Um, there's lots, lots of different examples of that. The other one is more like in the trenches, the one-on-one, -on -one, um, conversations that, you know, it may not be that person is your customer, but they may know somebody. And you see people even doing this, um, you know, when they first launched their business on Facebook, hey, I now offer this service for this audience, not necessarily expecting their friends to be that audience, but they might know that audience. I develop websites for real estate brokers. Okay. Now, now I know that makes it a, a way easier referral if I happen to come across a real estate broker who needs a website. One of my favorite examples from the podcast was this um, good old boy from Alabama who has a pallet flipping business and he describes, he's been doing this for 20 years, describes it as, you know, rolling up, you know, nowadays it's like Google earth, Google earth over the industrial areas of your town. Um, and if you see a stack of pallets outside, you know, at least whenever the satellite captured it, that's a good sign. So you roll up, uh, knock on the door. Hey, what, what do y'all do with those pallets? 
and you know they're either a buyer or a seller. So he's making this database um, of buyers and sellers of pallets. They either you know needed to get their inventory in, or they needed to ship it out, and then they don't know what to do with it. Because oftentimes he's getting the stuff for free, and oftentimes because he's built this network of buyers and suppliers, he's just driving around the corner to the next part of the industrial park and selling them. To that, I was like, this is so simple, but it's so genius. And just started with that one conversation, that one question. What do y'all do with those pallets? That's, that's, that's crazy because my dad is in that business. That's what he Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and he's total technology phobic. He doesn't – so it's like you can do the same business different ways. He just you know drives around and looks for places and forms relationships where he gets pallets and and redistributes them. And he, he just takes it further than that. He rebuilds them. He finds crappy ones and yanks a couple pieces off of one, slaps them on the other – uh, and he's been doing that for like 20-something years himself. And, yeah, and that just, just shows totally different approaches to the same business. But with both people, and I know my dad, you know, hustle and work. And never, never, I think one of the big things is, yeah, find a customer, never let that customer down, and they will give you another customer. Right. You know, but you got to never, like, once you let them down, man, they're like, ugh. You know, like, yeah, you, yeah, you said you'd be here Tuesday at 9 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, and it's Wednesday, and you're not here, and you didn't call me, and you're done. And I, and even if I, even if I let you still keep that business, and even if I can't find somebody better right now, and the next job, I'll give it to you because you're the best I got. I am not going to tell my friend to hire you, right? I am not going to recommend you. And and you know, earlier I said marketing is telling your story. Um, Viral marketing is getting other people to tell your story. That's the entire thing, right? So there's two ways that could happen, and one of them's not good. Like one of them's like, this guy is great. You should go listen to his podcast. He talks about side hustles and stuff like that, and that's what you want. What you wouldn't want is, oh, this guy's a clown. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Never take any. Like you don't want the other kind of marketing. I guess it's better than none at all. What does P.T. Barnum say? Smell my name right or something, right? But really, they didn't have Twitter, right? They didn't have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook back then, and you, you can get hurt really fast with a few bad stories, especially when they start to come together. So you never let those early customers down. And I think, like, I would love to still do what I did in the beginning, where every single email that came in I answered, every single comment I responded to, you know, every single uh, post that mentioned me, I was, like, in there. And instead of just thanks for the shout-out, it was, like, really appreciate that. And I noticed this, and that's awesome you did. I really wish I could do that with everybody now. But success gets you to a point where you can't, and you do what you can. And I think people still see that, and that's good. But in the beginning, you need to love every customer, every comment. You need to appreciate them for what they are, the people that believed in you when you're nothing. And yeah. You need to make them feel that, and then they won't go away, and they'll always tell other people about you. And when you do screw up, they'll forgive you as long as you admit it and actually apologize for what you did instead of how they felt about it. Like that's that's like so critical in this this world we live in today because you know we have major brands and their customers feel like they have relationships with that brand even though it's you know the third guy with a, with a pimple face hired out of college that answered that comment thread that week that was recycled over they feel they have that relationship and big brands try to do that but they can only do so much of it because of that scenario where like the individual entrepreneur you can. You can make people feel that relationship's real because it is. And so those first customers are key finding, but keeping and nurturing and building. And I'm sure you're familiar with the thousand true fans model. Like that model works. And when I first read that years ago, I was like, 
So that's three times the average income of the average American. That's what that because a thousand true fans, you have a thousand people willing to spend one day's wages with you a year. That's about three times an annual average annual median salary. If you can't live off that, adjust your budget. Right. And getting to a thousand, I think anybody can do that. Kind of in in the world that we're in, uh, and I mean content creation, not you know podcasting or not business or not survivalism, but in something. And if you can do that, then you just have to build something that they're willing to pay for and then nurture those fans. Yeah. Do you know uh, Cliff Ravenscraft? I know the name and it's slipping, it's slipping who the, who that is right now. He is the podcast answer man and he was given a oh, talk. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at um, a conference I was at and kind of recounting the story. Somebody's like, Cliff, um, this sucks. I've been doing the podcast uh, for, for months and months. I'm only getting 200 downloads. <laughs> and he was like, first of all, don't say only because you got 200 people who are paying attention to you. You know, you have a unique advantage that a lot of people will never have. You know, you have the opportunity to know them by name. Um, you know, there's not 200 people in this room right now. We're out of this conference. Like, look around. Like, that's a lot of people, you know, first of all. And it's just he kind of totally reframed that. It's like you have a really good start here. And now to your point about viral marketing, it's like how to get them to tell your story. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with podcasting, that's that's a unique opportunity. Like 200 is all you need to be successful if you're good. Because if 200 people will each tell one, that's four. <laughs> you know, and even if you can only get every new 200 to tell one, you can grow by 200 at a shot. When we started this show, like I was like, I want to hit a thousand a thousand downloads a day. That was just it, a thousand subscribers. And uh, I said, like, if you guys will help me get there. I will uh, give away, I'll do a drawing out of everybody that will commit to telling somebody about the show. I'll give away an iPod. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> and I'll inscribe, you know, something on the back of it and make it personal or whatever. And so we hit like 2,500 in our first six months. That's and, awesome. And it was, it was great, but it was also like, it was part of like a nefariously evil plan that was also benevolent, which was, <laughs> so this is the age of the internet. And if I ask people to commit to telling somebody, most of them, won't initially anyway go tell their best friend face-to-face -face over a beer. They're going to go put it on their blog or they're going to post it in a forum. So it was also a link-building strategy. Oh, I like it. I right? Like it. So, like, and it, like, you know, so it, it really helped get us traction in the search engines. It really helped us get exposure. It was great viral marketing. It was like... Uh, It was like directed viral marketing. Like you engineer the germ and then you release it into the air system so you know where it's going. And it worked really, really well. But I think if it was – if it was, there's a reason I, I hold back on saying that a lot of times to people is if you think that's all that it is, it won't work. Like if you don't – if you don't really like believe in what you're doing and you're not doing it for the right reasons and people feel used in that capacity, they're not going to do it. In fact, it's going to blow up in your face. Right. Obviously, it's got to be compelling. And obviously, you tapped into something that people wanted to share, like they were proud to share. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's I think like one of the big things is and I think it's part of what your podcast does. Give people something they can do. Like like part of why I started mine, I like listening to talk radio on, in the car every day and I wanted to punch somebody by the time I got to work or home. <laughs> and neither one of those is good. You know, your co-owner of the company, you can't go around hitting people. And when you get home, you really can't go around hitting people. But I wanted to. I'm like, these people, all they do is talk about problems, but nobody ever tells me what I can do. I don't learn anything. And I think one of the things with, with, with content creation, whether it's YouTube or podcasting or blogging, 
Like, we can do something the big media can't. The media has to play to the lowest common denominator. That's why advertising is written at, like, the, the fourth to fifth grade level. Because you have to play to the broad, you know, audience. And we can say, no, I'm only worried about this group of people right here. So we can dial that in and play to the highest denominator in that group so that we have the best people as part of what we're doing. And that's just something that until the Internet came along, you know, I'm sure you've heard of long tail in search, but we now have long tail in content. We have, we have artists out making a full-time living today playing acoustic guitar on, on YouTube. That's their entire market. They sell albums or whatever, but that's their entire marketing strategy. They don't have a record label. They're not in Nashville begging somebody to pay attention to them. And they don't care that they only have, you know, uh, a quarter million people that love them. They're as successful as they could ever hope to be, and they get to do what they love. And, and that's the world we live in today. Do you still see podcasting as a good model to start today versus 10 years ago? I hope so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, really, like, I guess, would, would you start it over today? Yeah, I would. I don't know that I would have ended up with the hook of survivalism. I think okay. that was a really good hook back then, but people that are you know long-term listeners of the show know that like prepping is a big part of what we talk about, but it's really not a survivalist show. It's a lifestyle design show. How do I make my life resilient? And that is a much, and I wanted to teach that, but I needed a hook, and that wasn't really a hook in 2008. People weren't talking like that in 2008. Today, that's a thing, right? People like Tim yeah. Ferriss and Gary Vaynerchuk and all, they made that a thing. That's so, I might go more in that vein today, but I think, so is, is podcasting a good business model? I think it's like, is it a good business model for you? And I think is, is your heart the heart of a teacher? If your heart is the heart of a teacher or in some way the heart of an entertainer, and hopefully both, then yes. If you're doing podcasting because, you know, Jack Spierko does podcasting or because Nick Lopper does podcasting, no, it's a terrible idea. Because you're doing it because it's a thing rather than because it is the way for you to do your thing. So kind of what I mean by that is like, I can't, and I, I bet you're the same way, I can't help but teach people who want to learn. Like, if somebody asks me something and I know about it, like, okay, let's, we'll talk about this as long as you want till you get it. Like, that's what I, I want to do. So I can either go, you know, make 50 grand a year in public school and, and hate my life, or I can go make a multi-six-figure income doing it on my own terms. And if you come at podcasting that way, I think you can be incredibly successful with it. But I think if you come at podcasting as a hobby, that's what you have. You have a hobby. And it, it's never going to be anything more. Like when I was doing this part-time in my car, I put out five shows a day. And I had people emailing me going, you're going to burn out. I'm like, no, that's that's not how this works. Like <laughs> like the fact that five I'm shows do, a day. No, I'm sorry. Five, dude, did I say that? Five shows a week. Okay, five shows a week. A, still, a show still, every I, day, I struggle right? to get one out a week. Right. So I did a show a day every day working this business part-time, and I still do a show a day every day. And the reason I think that works so well in the world of podcasting is the most valuable thing that anyone has today is their time. And if I'm asking you to give me your time to pay attention to what I'm doing, that if I'm there every day, you know you can depend on me. And I think weekly is fine, too, as long as it's consistent. Like, you better not miss a week. 
right? Like it's got to be there every week. So I know that every Monday or every Friday, this guy's material is coming out. I like this guy. I like what he's about. And I know it can depend on him to be there. So he can depend on me to be there. The other thing that I think I don't, I don't see this ever going away. I believe the most powerful form of communication and marketing is audio because it is the only medium that a person can truly take in while doing something else. And as time becomes more valuable, I don't have time to sit down and watch this guy's two-hour video on YouTube. But I do have 15 minutes on the Stairmaster, 10 minutes on the workout bench, and you know a jog to listen to his podcast. And only audio does that. You can listen to audio while driving. You can watch video while driving, but you really shouldn't. You can read, <laughs> but you really shouldn't. And you will never give it your full attention or you will die or kill somebody, right? But audio yeah. is the medium by which I can reach you in your garden. I can reach you in a deer blind. I can reach you in your car. If you have, you know, an office space, cubicle farm style of work where you're inputting numbers and you're After a while, your work's almost mindless because you're so good at it and you're on autopilot. Most people's bosses don't care if there's headphones in their ear. So I can reach you at work and I can convince you to quit your job while you're doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't I've know. I've a few of those emails. I love I, it. I don't know anything else other than audio that does that and podcasting makes audio scalable. Like, see, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and I always wanted something of my own and I would, I would buy these tapes You know, and I would listen to these tapes, uh, and I and I might listen to the same set of tapes from a business guru like like 20 times while I was driving around. And when I saw podcasting, I'm like, so I can get if if I can get enough people to listen, I can send out a million tapes a day for free. That's the way that I look at podcasting, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's an incredible. The reach that you can have for me starting out, I mean, you, you start out even leaner from your, from your car, $18 mic in the car. For me, it was a $50 mic in the living room. And, you know, to be able to reach thousands and thousands of people is, is incredible. And really the side benefit, the unexpected side benefit of that is a worldwide network. Now, everywhere we travel, like I'm able to hold meetups and, and connect with people who, who know me, they know my voice anyway. And it's just, it's been really, really rewarding. And I, I don't, I didn't, maybe didn't think far enough in advance or didn't think that, you know, it would eventually reach that many people, but that's been really the, the surprising, unexpected benefit of doing the show. And it's weird too, like the first time somebody recognizes your voice in public and they, but they don't even recognize you. Like I remember the first time it happened for me, I was on vacation with my wife in Florida and we were at this little diner and Fox News was on and some clown was on, you know, saying nonsense. And I'm like, I, you know, I said some kind of wise guy thing about it. And the guy sitting right next to me and been there for 20 minutes at this, bar at the diner and he goes i know who you are you're jack spierko and i'm like <laughs> oh my you know, this was pretty early on i'm like holy crap and it, it, it is very rewarding when people like start telling you about what they did like that's when i get emails like i started a business or you know we put this preparedness plan together and then we had a hurricane and this is how we got through it or something like it's it's incredibly rewarding and and that's the opportunity that exists today And I think more in podcasts than anywhere else because I, I, I've seen some really successful YouTube channels, but I also noticed things like I have like 40,000 subscribers on YouTube. I put out a video, I get 600 views. You know, we have like, because I was late to the Instagram party, we have like 3,000 Instagram followers. We just actually just started doing Instagram in, in August and we put out a, you know, a video on Instagram and we get like 800 views out of 3,000. 
And so I, I'm seeing that more and more things are shifting as to where people are spending their time and spending their focus. And it, I, I just believe in that world. Audio is the place that you can break through everything because it doesn't matter what somebody's doing. You can still get to them. Yeah, I like it. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a fan, too. I was just curious if you thought, hey, it's getting more saturated or, or what? I would not invest in video podcasting. I, I, that's one thing I wouldn't do. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just feel like, you know, I did a, a business podcast for a while. I did like a hundred and some episodes and then kind of was like, okay, if, if anybody ever comes to me and it's everything that I said in every episode and they still want more and actually did it, I'll do more. And because it's kind of a side thing, but I, I experimented with doing some video with it. Just, to, I was like, why don't I video it? Strip out the audio and throw the video up on YouTube. And then I found out people that didn't know I had the podcast on YouTube were stripping the audio out of YouTube so they could listen to it in their car. Oh. And I'm like, oh, well, duh. Like, you already understood this and you, you bucked the trend. So I don't know. I guess if you're a really cute girl, uh, maybe video will work better. Or if something you're doing is highly visual where you're showing things. Um, but, you know... I, I don't have a lot of free time, and I, I am a, I guess, reason I'm a fan of podcasts. I'm a consumer, not just a, a producer. Yeah, me, me too. And I think listening to other shows has helped me become a better host in learning what you like, what you don't like. Even listening to, um, you know, some much, much better produced podcasts. Be like, oh, look, look what they did there. You start to notice these things, and you're like, okay, I could definitely step up my my production game. Yeah, yeah. So. Like with you've been done like 300 plus episodes now, so you've talked to a lot of people doing a lot of things. What are some of the most surprising side hustles that you've seen? Oh my gosh! So the the pallet flipping guy, that one definitely um, <laughs> stuck out in my mind. The knife sharpening one was interesting. I met this guy from I want to say Calgary, Canada, whose business started in the early 80s. Uh, picking up trash in parking lots mm. and he's built this up to now 600 grand or something a year where he's got other people to do the parking lot cleanup for him but he's like hey it's a perfect side hustle i can do it early morning before my r real job and i'm out getting exercise and a walk and i'm thinking like five o'clock in the morning in calgary is going to be freezing but you know he was happy to do it and he was making good money so that one stands out another one i thought was inspiring recently was the bounce house rental guy oh, who yeah. um he, he he wanted to get started in real estate investing but he he goes to his kid's friend's birthday party and they've got one of these giant inflatable bounce houses there and you know the light bulb goes off that like this is rental real estate in a way it's like inflatable real estate so he goes and finds a used one on craigslist for 800 bucks or something and starts renting it out for 130, 140 bucks a day. And of course, it's, it deals with the insurance and all the other stuff that goes into it. But I was like, you know, that was a, a really cool way. Like, I had this idea to get started in, you know, rental real estate, like, but I don't have the capital. Here's some, here's a house that I can buy for way cheaper and, <laughs> and it pencils out better than traditional rental real estate. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and I just think like, as soon as you said that, um, my, my nephew and I guess you'd call her my niece in law, have two girls at every birthday party. They rent a bounce house. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're still a lot younger than me and also like they have the kids play with it and they, you know, they invite family and friends and some of the friends are the cooler young hip friends. So by the time we all get like, hey, I've been here, I did my two hours of obligatory great uncle show up, right? I'm going home and the kids are done and tired and kids start to go home and the kids that are left go play. Then they get all the, the it's like a frat party back there and all the adults are drinking beer and sliding down the, because they do the bounce house with the pool in the bottom and it's like, Yeah, somebody has to provide that. Nice. You know, somebody has to do that. And so there's another example. And, you know, that's pretty viral, too. Like, if your kid goes to a party and they have a bounce house, guess what they're going to come home and say they want for their party? A bounce house. Yeah, that's or, true. That's you know, true. They want a bounce house. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen some stuff that's that's pretty cool. Um, you know, you mentioned about picking up garbage in uh, uh, parking lots. There's one guy in our community here, and what he's doing is he just drives around and look. He knows the day for every city and town around him where they have the get rid of your big stuff, you know, garbage day where you can put out the old TV or whatever. And okay. he just drives around and picks stuff up. And he taught himself how to fix stuff. And he was saying, like, his number one items that he sells are washers and dryers. And what will usually happen is somebody will have either their washer or their dryer break. Mm-hmm. And then they will buy a new set, and he only has to fix one. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I actually met a guy who makes his full time living similar to that, except this guy's even better. He gets his inventory for free. Guy made his full time living um, buying and selling stuff on Craigslist and and specialized in appliances. Oh, like, wow. Can you imagine like a bigger, bulkier item to try and transport and stuff? And he had twenty of them in his garage. But I, lo- I lo- any business you can get your inventory for free is fantastic. So a guy around here that's making a, a decent living for himself, he moves pool tables. He just That's his job. He moves pool tables. How does he get his business? He reaches out to every single person selling a pool, uh, a pool table on Craigslist and says, oh, okay. if you find somebody that wants to buy this pool table, but they live across town and they don't want to deal with it, I move pool tables. Here's my rate card. And the guy immediately will put into his ad, Uh, delivered to your home for X dollars. Right. Because <laughs> That's like, awesome. like I, I, nobody wants to move like a, a nine foot slate pool table. This guy's yeah. set up to move pool tables. He has a buddy. They've moved, you know, every kind of pool table considerable. They have, you know, a rate plus mileage thing that they do. And since it's a pool table you're having delivered, you bought used. It's not like I need it by Friday at 3 p.m. You know, it's always like, you know, we work Saturdays and Sundays and, you know, As they built it, they've gone to where we work, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, but they're kind of part-time but full-time now, and, and, and that's what they do. They move pool tables. And if you go on Craigslist and you're in a, you know, this is a six million person market, um, any kind of large market, there's always 30 or 40 pool tables for sale. Because what happens is you buy a pool table, you don't use it, you need to get rid of it, and it's heavy and it's big. Or you buy a new house and there's no place for it. So you want to get something out of it. The new guy didn't want it. So there's always pool tables for sale. And so I look at that and go, you know, the other thing that I see, I haven't seen anybody do it yet, but the other thing I see on Craigslist all the time for sale, spas. Big, bulky, heavy, difficult to move. But, yeah. you know, like I think a lot of people like, you know, I'd like to buy a spa. I don't want to pay $7,000 for one like a fool. And this guy's selling his for $1,500, bucks, but how the hell do I get this giant <laughs> – right. But if you can come up, and that seems like a hard thing to do, but once you say, okay, what are the exact tools, procedures, and processes I need for this one thing, then to you it's just another day at the office. Right, and you could even do it 
you know, lean startup style where it's like, okay, I'm going to go uh, get the customer first, and then I'm going to go rent the flatbed and do it that way so you yeah. don't have the overhead of getting the truck beforehand. And then once you do it enough, you make enough money to buy your equipment, and then you eliminate that expense. Yeah. You know? There's uh, – I have a friend that his whole business was built around construction. He ended up doing government contract work for millions of dollars. But in the beginning, him and a buddy just started a small construction company, and they did their first six months' worth of work – basically making no actual money to take out of the business to buy all the equipment so they could take bigger jobs. And like, so when people say like, how do I get started? Like, well, how bad do you, how bad do you want this? You know, are you willing to tend bar, you know, or wait tables to pay your bills for the first six months and work 18 hours a day? If you are, then all you got to do is figure out what you want to do and put the sweat equity in. But a lot of people say they want it and they don't want it. And I think sometimes people like you and I, And I'm sure you're guilty, but you can want it for them more than they want it for themselves. Yeah, there's there's a million ways to get it done. It's really just a matter of, of picking one and and executing on it. I think as we as we've seen just from this conversation, I mean, you're throwing ideas back at me that I never thought of. I'm like, dude, that's genius. Yeah, I mean, I've seen people do pet sitting businesses now. Rover makes that scalable. Like, are you familiar with Rover? Mm-hmm. So yeah, Rover's like Uber for pet sitters. But, I mean, back in the day, 20 years ago, I knew a girl that built, like, a $80,000 a year business, pet-sitting, walking, and dogs and cats. And, you know, and when, I, when I heard she was doing that, I'm like, I know how this woman is with animals, and she will never lose a customer to somebody else. Because yeah. no one is going to treat their dog like a little princess or a little prince the way this woman <laughs> will. So that was, an idea, that was a thing where she found her her perfect thing. This This lady... Like, she was an activist, too, like an animal rights activist, not the crazy ones that don't say, you know, say we can't eat bacon or something. But, like, if there was an abused dog, they would, like, put together, like, a SWAT team and go steal the dog. So I'm like, okay, you believe in what you're doing. So if you're going to take this business, like, who else is going to bring that passion to that business? And so there's just, again, is there something that people don't want to do that, that you can do for them? You know, I mean, I, I... I'm kind of a DIY type guy, but I hate cleaning swimming pools. I have a gal that cleans my swimming pool. Now, I don't have an in-ground pool because where I live to put in an in-ground pool requires dynamite, and I'm not spending more money on the hole than the pool, so I have an <laughs> above-ground pool. Well, I learned something. No pool company tends to want to clean above-ground pools. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's hard to find someone to service an above-ground pool. Uh, we found a guy, I talked to him. He was making about 80 grand a year cleaning swimming pools. He, Interesting. He killed himself eight months out of the year because it's a long summer down here. And he, you know, he worked, you know, quarter speed for three months out of the year, took his vacations then, did all that. He got to the point where he was retiring. And I was like, oh crap. I don't want to, like, because I made the deal with my wife. We'll get a pool. You have to find somebody to clean it. So now, like, my guy's retiring. And he had, he had trained this gal to kind of take over for him. She's a prison guard. And she's like six years from retirement. She's doing this as a side hustle. But once she gets to retirement, this is her transition plan. And I'm not going to fire because I don't want to do it. And there's not a lot of people. Like if you have an in-ground pool, like there's a hundred people that'll do it. They're lining up to take your business. There's not a lot of people that'll do in-ground or above ground. And I don't, I don't know if it's because they consider it a lower demographic or whatever it is, but they don't want to do it. So since nobody wants to do it, That's your opportunity. And, like, I asked the guy how – he's like, all I did, I was a donut delivery guy for six months. 
Every week, I got a bunch of donuts, and I went to every pool store that sold above-ground pools and brought them a dozen donuts and my business card and said, if you sell any pools this week, let people know I service the pools. For the first month of doing that, I was another guy asking for business. After a month of bringing donuts every week, like I was all, like when they would sell a pool, they would staple my business card to the thing because the number one thing a person would say when they bought a pool was, do you help with setup? Do you know how to do you teach us how to clean it? Whatever. And a lot of these companies, they're doing uh, like it's like a pool college for like a weekend. Like you go in and they spend a couple hours with you and teach you how to vacuum and all in their okay, store. Okay. But they won't do anything. Like even the guy that they have a contractor that sets the pool up for you. They don't even throw chemicals in to start it out. They're like, here's your pool, bye. Right. So, so it's not my need, job. I'm out of here. So people need help getting started. Well, if the guy shows up and starts their pool up, and then they're like, well, what do you? I charge thirty bucks a week during the summer and thirty bucks a month during the winter to take care of your pool, and you never have to touch it again. Some percentage of those people are going to become repeat business. And then he's he was the guy did this. The girl doesn't. She takes cash only. Uh, which has its own advantages and disadvantages. But the guy, he just got you on a PayPal subscription. And he just amateurized it over a year so that you were paying a little less in the summer, a little more in the winter. So he smoothed his cash flow out, and he had no collection issues. If your thing didn't go through, you had to resubscribe before he'd show up and do your pool. I love the donut delivery yeah. tactic. My friend calls it the marsupial method. I don't know why, how he came Mars- up with that name. <laughs> but, it, but it was like the basic principle was just that, like going to where your target cars, where your target customers are already doing business. Like how can you get in front of those people and get them to basically send them your way? Look, I don't compete with you, but I want to do business with your customers. Well, yeah, and he would do things like he'd say he'd watch when they started taking the donuts out, like which ones everybody went to first. So then, like, okay, they all go for the sprinkles and the glazed. So, like, he would make notes. Like, when I go to this location, you know, tell them I want a box of mostly sprinkled and glazed or whatever it was that they liked best. So he wasn't just the donut guy. He was the donut guy that brought the donuts they liked. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> awesome. you know, you can buy a dozen donuts pretty cheap. And, uh, you know, he, he, I think he made, like, a wholesale deal. Like, he was doing so much business with taking donuts out that he had, like, one donut shop that was giving them, like, their day-old donuts, which are still fine. And he was getting, like, you know, donuts for half price, so he cut his marketing in half. And, like, <laughs> He's doing split testing on what the favorite flavors yeah, are. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was like – and, and like I said, when he retired, like, I was like, damn it. Because, I, like, I don't like to talk to people, believe it or not, at, you know, unless I really get along with them one-on-one. And uh, so I would go out, like, the girl that comes down, she's fine. But when she shows up, I, I don't go outside. Because I don't want a conversation to start. Like him, I'd go out and hang out with him, and I'd learn stuff from this guy. So I was like, damn, I'm losing my pool guy. I'm losing my, my weekly conversation. And so you could see why he was good at what he did. Because when he showed up at the pool place, it wasn't like, oh, tell him I'm gone, I died, or whatever. It was, oh, it, you know, it's, it's Frank. He's here with donuts. Let's talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing and hear your podcast, where can they find you and find all your stuff? Of course, would love to have you tune into the Side Hustle Show, um, wherever wherever podcasts, uh, whatever podcast app that you like, uh, you'll be able to find it there. Um, if these ideas are interesting to you, and if you're still in that idea searching stage, uh, you can head over to sidehustlenation.com/ideas. That's my constantly updated laundry list of different different money making ideas uh, that you can start today. And um, but but here's the deal: is you got to promise to take action on it. Absolutely. You know what? I'll tell you, you asked me earlier where I'd send people for ideas. I'd send them to your site. Um, I think if they just start listening to your archive of episodes, 
and you listen to entrepreneurs that are actually being successful, you're going to get ideas. And uh, I'll reinforce that, uh, that, that what was that rip, pivot, the and rip, jam? Yes. I'll reinforce the pivot. Because like, I, I listened to your most recent show with the gal that did the petite fitness thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, we've been doing this 10 years. I've been in business my whole life. But I'm an Instagram virgin, man. I don't really – I ignored that one because I'm like, I'm not that visual. And I'm like, you're nah, – I'm like, you're stupid. Uh, <laughs> you should have been doing this the whole time. You're an idiot. But, like, so when I was listening to her and she was talking about, like, well, when I was building my audience, she, like, I, the thing I didn't get about Instagram was, like, what you were asking. Like, you can't share posts on Instagram like you do on Facebook. So how do you grow? And she was like, well, I started commenting – on other people's posts, but not to them, but to their commenters that were asking questions that weren't getting answers. And it wasn't go check my stuff out. It was an answer to their actual problem. Right. And I'm like, okay, I know that, but we're not doing that. So I'm thinking if a guy that's been doing this and working social media for over 10 years, et cetera, can learn from that one episode, then, then this audience can learn from what you're doing, man. So I would say if you're trying to find an idea of what to do, You know, go check out uh, Nick's podcast and just start listening to some of his archive episodes. And I think you'll come away with you, you come away with the typical problem. I got all these ideas. Which one do I do? <laughs> and then, like you said, okay, then you got to do something, right? I mean, that's I've done like we do workshops here at the place, and I'll do we do a barter blanket at night, and I'll say I'm going to give away you know um, an hour of consulting for free, or I'll do a day at my place where we can talk about what you're going to do. But what I always say is. But you have to commit that you're going to go do not you're not necessarily going to do what we came to, but you're going to go do something because you know no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. So you might have to adjust, but you got to go do something, and uh, that's that's kind of what I'm in it for. I can tell that's what you're in it for. So hey man, I appreciate you being with us today. I'll have links to your uh, podcast. Uh, I'll dig through your site, find all your social media links. I'll make sure they're all in the uh, the show notes for today's show. And, and I really appreciate you being with us, man. You bet. This was a blast, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to come back, you know how to do it now. Fill out the form. Dorothy will get in touch with you and get you booked. We have people all the time like, I want to be on the show. Fill out the form. But I was <laughs> going to tell you what I want to be on the show about. Fill out the form. <laughs> If Jesus and Buddha wanted to be on the show together, I'd tell them to fill out the form, man. You're not, you're not getting around that. Fill the form out. We'll get you back on. And I really do appreciate what you're doing. I can tell you're doing it. You know, you want to make some money, but you're doing it with the heart of a servant. That fits in well around here, so you're welcome anytime, man. Sounds good, man. Thanks again. I told you that would be a great interview, and I bet there's quite a few of you out there with your brain churning about what you can do right now. Remember, I just did a show yesterday on making the most of winter downtime. Hopefully this lumps onto that, because one of the many things I said you could do with that winter downtime is work on those side hustles, work on that online presence, work on that business, work on that skill set development. Now, there's a lot of opportunity to take a little bit of time to learn a lot in a short period of time coming up over this next quarter. So during that winter downtime, consider getting your side hustle on. Uh, with that, guys, if you like this show and you want to support the work that we do and the guests that we bring you and all the great stuff that we try to do for you on a daily basis, consider just taking one simple step in your life. That is, do your online shopping through tspaz.com. I'm going to shop online. Go to tspaz.com first. It's painless. You don't have to even worry about exactly what you're going to get. Just go there first. You can get over to Amazon and see the deals of the day, and you can see all of my reviews. 
Uh, what I have for you today is the E-Tech City 4-pack of LED lanterns. And this is an item I know I brought around like a month and a half ago. I'm bringing it back because it is Christmas time. Do they know? I'm not going to hurt you with singing. Uh, but you know, it's Christmas time. And to me, Christmas is a great time of year for giving things to others and maybe do it in a way that's not some you know ornamental thing. That they're going to go, oh, this is great, and put it on the shelf, and it's gone. You never see it again. Uh, you know, if you need to give a, a gift return receipt with your gift to be sure you probably didn't nail it, I don't know that anybody that you give this gift to is going to not want it. I mean, they might not have thought about it. They might not have asked about it. And the best thing is many people in your life would never buy it for themselves. One of my challenges with friends and family, especially close friends, can I find something that this person not only doesn't have, they would like, and they probably wouldn't buy for themselves? Uh, in this instance, it's a little inexpensive gift. It's $25.99 for a four-pack, or you can get the upgraded ones, which I think are really awesome, for $31.99 for a, uh, a four-pack. It's about eight bucks a piece. These are little LED lanterns, and it's a way to spread pre preparedness and to make sure that the people you care about actually have a modicum of preparedness. If you give this to somebody and they put it in a little bin and set it in their house somewhere where they know where it is, well, it's going to get used the first time the power goes out. And they're going to be glad they have it. And then maybe they'll listen to you a little bit more about preparedness. But it'll probably get used for other things. Like a kid that's scared in bed. They'll set one of these on their table right next to them. And if they're scared, they can open it up a little bit and let a little bit of light out or a lot, let a lot of light out. Or the new ones, you can have a dimmer switch on them. They can sit there and maybe read a little bit before they go to bed, etc. The damn things last for damn near ever. On the batteries that come with them for free. The batteries are worth a third of the price of the objects that you're buying. This is a great product, and you will see a few negative reviews on YouTube about them. I've, I've, not YouTube, on Amazon about them. But this is, I wrote them a letter and asked about these negative reviews. Here's the letter I got back from eTech City. Hello, Jack. Thank you for reaching out to us, and thank you for all the feedback. We appreciate it. Honestly, we sell hundreds, if not thousands, of these lanterns a day. And we do have some problems with them. They're not perfect. Typically, the main issue is a little toggle switch in the base, likely during shipping breaks. Unfortunately, and once in a while, the top of the lantern is cracked or loose again, probably due to shipping. Once the lantern makes it to the customer and they arrive in good order, we never hear from the customer because they seem to not fail with normal use. We usually only hear from the customers the moment they open the package and find damage. Then we immediately send out a replacement, and then all lanterns come with a one-year warranty. These are not the world's greatest lantern, but for around six bucks a piece, they're one of the Amazon's best sellers, and we think for the price they're the best around. Thank you. Okay, so every single one of those one-star reviews are people that simply could have gotten a free replacement of, on a $6.50 product. Honestly, this is why I recommend so many things from eTech City. Talk about honesty. In a nutshell, they said, hey, look, when you sell many, this many products of this type, some are going to have some problems, but we stand by and replace them. And what more could you ask for from a person or from a company? Now, the thing is, do them as gifts. When you get them in, if you're going to give them as gifts, open them up, check them out, make sure they work. If they work and you give them, you know now, you're probably not going to have any problems or you're not going to come back to you, hey, that thing you gave me broke. Uh, and I understand a... A product like this, made of plastic, shipped by you know uh, imperfect beings known as humans through the postal service, etc., can get damaged. What you want is a company that stands behind their product. I recommend so many things from eTech City, 
because they always stand behind their product. E-Tech City and Anchor, these are two companies that I recommend with confidence to you through TSPAS. I own lots of their products. I use their products. I have had problems with both companies. And any time I've had a problem and I've contacted them, the response is, don't even worry about sending it back. We will replace it. That makes me confident in making my recommendations to you. And remember, not just these guys, but anything that you can go on and find at tspaz.com or any shopping you do that starts there helps the survival podcast and the work that we do. And it is that time of year where you're probably doing lots of shopping. So remember tspaz because it's a painless way to support the podcast that you listen to. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day. Song of the day today is a song I've played before. We are in One Hit Wonder Week. This song's from 1969. It's by a, a folk duo named Zager and Evans, and it's called In the Year 2525. It's very apocalyptic. Uh, in the year 2525, if man is still alive. If man is still alive. Um, you know, so we're looking at more than 500 years from now and close to almost 600 years uh, into the future when this song was written, where the doomsday predictions start. And there's always in every every uh, time sequence here, you know, 35, 35, etc., always beginning with, if man is still alive. And some of the imagery in this song is pretty indicative of some of the things that may come along and may be far quicker than uh, the song would indicate. Uh, you know, test tube babies, genetic modifications of humans, uh, the merging of human and technological consciousness. Um, Dan Brown's latest book, and I don't remember what it's called now, but Dan Brown's latest book uh, in the Robert Langdon series deals with this very, very specifically. Origin is what it's, I think it's called Origin. And, and that book, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler alert, but really talks about the merging of humans and machines and the rise of almost a new species. And, and some of that stuff seems like some of it, but there's also a lot of dark, you know, and the constant if man is still alive. Let me tell you something, guys. As much as we talk about preparedness and the bad things that can happen, this mindset is not really worth having. Concerns, you know, paying attention to what's going on, sure. But the whole if man is still alive, this whole apocalyptic viewpoint. If the world's going to end, there ain't jack shit you can do about it by worrying about it, so go out and live your life. Go out and build a business like we talked about today. Go do something. Um, and, and then understand it probably won't. It probably won't. One of the reasons this song was such a hit in 1969 is if you told people that humans will probably wipe themselves off the planet by the year 2000, many people of the time would have been like, of course, I don't think we'll last that long. Well, here it is, 2018. We're still here. We're heading for 2019. And I don't know, you know, none of us are going to ever see 2525, but I think there's many, I don't think there's many people today who think we're not going to see 2025. But this is actually a big part of, I think, why the left is so miserable. They've bought into all the doomsday predictions with climate change and every other doomsday prediction that's ever come on, and therefore they don't have a lot of optimism about the future. That's why they always think we need government to fix everything, because they don't have optimism about the future. I have tremendous op uh, 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 optimism about the future. And the reason I do mainly is because of the work that I've done here, of all things, in the niche of survivalism. Because what I've watched this community do shows me the potential that we have as people. 
And for all of the bad things technology brings us, it's also brought us some amazing things. So I look at this song kind of like a horror movie. It's a great fantasy built on some reality, but it's also quite a departation from reality, and that's how it should be enjoyed. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may fight. In the year 3535, ain't gonna need to tell the truth, tell no lies. Everything you think, do, and say Is in the bill you took today In the year 4545 Ain't gonna need your teeth, won't need your eyes You won't find a thing to chew Nobody's gonna look at you In the year 5555 Your arms are hanging limp at your side Got nothing to do Some machine Doing that for you In the year 65, 65 Ain't gonna need no husband Won't need no wife You pick your son Pick your daughter too From the bottom of a long Glass tube whoa, whoa. It's time for the judgment day In the year 8510 God is gonna shake his mighty head He'll either say I'm pleased where man has been Or tear it down and start again oh, oh. In the year 